It's Monday, August 27th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 174 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation for today, what is a live podcast. Between myself and the great and exceptional clarinetist Ben Goldberg. This conversation was recorded very recently, August 15th, at Arate in Brooklyn. It was the fourth live podcast that we did, and it was really good. For those of you that weren't there, you guys missed a good one. But you get to hear it today. Today on the show, Ben Goldberg. Before we get into it, just a couple of things. The show with Ben today, it was a conversation that was preceded by a solo clarinet concert that Ben gave. And if you're interested in solo clarinets, I just put out a record. It's the first record I've done in two years. My first solo record in six years for solo clarinet and electronics called Decay of the Angel. I worked really hard on it. And uh, I would like for you to check it out. Go to the 5049 website. Uh, you'll find all the links you need for streaming and, and purchasing and blah, 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 blah. If you're enjoying this show, do me a favor, will you? Rate and review it in iTunes. Subscribe to it and uh, go one further. Go to the Patreon and throw in a few bucks if you're so inclined. This show operates on a uh, listener-supported model. And um, yeah, it would be very helpful. You know, my favorite episode of the whole podcast, of all the episodes I've done, was episode 49, which was the first episode I did with Ben Goldberg. We recorded it back in 2014. And as it is now, all the, all the, the whole archive is available only to Patreon donors. So if you want to hear what I consider to be the best episode of the whole podcast, you'll want to do that. Ben Goldberg. What do you guys know about Ben? He's the best clarinetist I know. He just put out a really crazy record, uh, a duo record with Michael Coleman doing these etudes that uh, Steve Lacey wrote and recorded many years ago. And it is hands down one of the craziest and greatest things I've ever heard. These, these guys have outdone themselves with it. And if you want to hear a piece of music that's actually about great music, uh, it, you know, seemingly, I, I've, been, I've become pretty disenchanted, like even more so than usual for me. There's a lot of bad, 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 bad music happening right now. Uh, but if you want to avoid that shit and actually hear something that uh, has a bit of freshness to it, check out their record, Practitioner. Ben Goldberg. You ain't going to find uh, someone that plays it like Ben. Pure, beautiful tone, a real musical seeker, and a great conversationalist. Had a really good time talking to Ben. I always do. And here it is. Here's my conversation in front of an audience uh, just about a week and a half ago in Brooklyn, me and Ben Goldberg. Enjoy. This is Mr. Ben Goldberg.
record these things. Should we wait for this person to come out of the bathroom? Or should we uh, turn the mics up to ensure that they hear us in there? Uh, normally, we record these things uh, at my house with just the two of us sitting in a small cramped corner of my apartment. Um, I'm just turning this thing off so it doesn't interrupt us. Uh, not in front of a, a group of people. Um, the last time that Ben was at my apartment for one of these conversations um, was 2014. And it was an interesting conversation. Uh, I've done, I don't know if any of you guys listen to the podcast that I do, but uh, I've done almost 200 of them. Ben was number 49, and I've said it before, it was my favorite episode of the entire run. And the last time I saw you, the last time, or for this, in this setting, we were talking a lot about, uh, you were having a bit of a crisis with your mouthpiece. <laughs> and I, I, we're not going to have an all clarinet thing. We weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> I just want to know how the crisis is, is going. It took quite a long time. I was in the midst of the crisis. Yeah. I had been playing at the Stone every night, and I didn't have a mouthpiece that worked. How many musicians? How many guys are musicians? I know Dave is. That I mean, for the equivalent for a guitar player is like if you had like half your fingers removed. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't working at all. Yeah. And I tried this and that, and I went out to see this crazy Russian guy in uh, Coney Island who supposedly knew how to fix mouthpieces. And uh huh. You ever meet that guy? Someone texted me about him today. Eddie, right? Yeah. Eddie, yeah. See, he claims to be the world's expert on how to fix clarinet mouthpieces. It was that your experience? I mean, I, he gave me something that I could kind of, I thought I could play on, but I don't play on it anymore. But see, so, I, you, I feel like you are more, con I mean, you're definitely a more confident musician than me, but if I were confronted with any physical frustration between myself and the instrument, I would just assume it was me. It had been becoming clear to me that it, it wasn't just me, that it was actually equipment. Yeah. And it was that, and you, and you and I spoke on Sunday afternoon, and there was one show left, and that was the show. Actually, I, that show got recorded. That's out there. You can, you can listen to that show. That's where we played. We took a Thelonious Monk song called Let's Cool One, uh -huh. and we played it at the slowest possible tempo. And the tempo turned out to be something like quarter note equals 13 seconds. And we played the whole song that way. I played the melody. Uh -huh. it, literally, it took about, it must have taken 15 minutes to play the song through once. Because <laughs> I just held every chord, because that song's made out of quarter notes. Right. And we played it as slow as possible. You, you can find that on Bandcamp. It's really cool. <laughs> it, I mean, it's like totally cool. And Liberty Elman played the electric guitar. Steve Cardenas played the electric guitar. Uh -huh. Chess Smith played the drums. Trevor Dunn played the bass. But did you just play, like, play you played... No, I choruses? played the melody, and those guys did whatever they wanted to do. Right, but I mean, at that tempo, did you... I mean, how many times did you play the chorus? I think I must have played the melody through melody. once. And the, and the idea, which turned out to be true, was if you did that, you'd be in a different place yeah. by the end of the melody. And, and it really... Uh, some kind of door opened up, and things got really weird. Right. And now, four or five years later, yeah. the crisis has been averted? The mouthpiece crisis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
You're not talking politics. Right? Well, no, I'm certainly not talking politics, but there's okay. a lot of crises I guess we could talk about. No, 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 please. Um, the mouthpiece crisis resolved itself kind of in the direction of, you know, once upon a time I had the perfect, here we are talking about mouthpieces, but I just want to say, <laughs> once upon a time I had the per most perfect clarinet mouthpiece in the whole universe. I really did. I was going through my old mouthpieces and I found, this is going to mean something to you, it might not mean something to everybody here unless you're a clarinetist, but I found a Chedeville mouthpiece. Okay. Chedeville is a legendary French mouthpiece that they stopped making in maybe the 1950s or something. And they're, it's like, uh, what do they call it? The Holy Grail or something like that. Mm. Like, and people used to play on them and then they stopped making them. And I was like, man, this is weird. I found a Chedeville mouthpiece. Took it to my friend, he fixed it up. And it was the most, per I could do anything on that. Mm. It was warm, it was clear, like high notes, low notes, articulation, everything. It was incredible. But the thing about those mouthpieces is that they're made of very soft material. So over the years, it just decayed as mm -hmm. I played it. So, But this current crisis resolved itself in the sense of me realizing or finding out or learning that there is really no such thing as the perfect clarinet mouthpiece anymore. There's is, is that, is trade -offs. that a, is that a comment on, is, is that um, an existential comment or, or just a comment on No, no, on no, it's a realistic comment, uh -huh. a realistic comment. No, 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 yeah. there's trade-offs. And the thing I'm playing now, it's a Van Doren, I love it, but it's not perfect. There's certain things that it's lacking or that you, I just can't do, but it does the trick. But in those imperfections, are you finding, are you finding music? Are you finding... You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like everything you do when you're playing, and especially when we're talking, like more often than not ends with a question mark rather than, than a period. There you go. Yeah. But that's, so I was a little, when I listened back to the conversation that we had and realized that there was a very important thing we didn't talk about once. Um, and when I was 19, I listened to the first new Klezmer Trio record. I think it was the first one, Masks and Faces. Masks and Faces, yeah. that was the first one. And that record changed the way I listened to the clarinet, wow. and it changed the way that I wanted to play the clarinet. And we didn't talk about that band or, or that period of time at okay. all. Okay. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that period of time in San Francisco and what that band, um, like sort of what the genesis of the band was and what it meant to you. Totally, yeah, totally. Well, klezmer music. Do people know, still know what that is? Klezmer music? It's like it had old, a moment. Well, <laughs> it's like old Jewish music. And when I was coming up, that's what it was. It was just like old Jewish music. Well, let's put it this way. When I was little, you didn't want to hear that stuff. It was embarrassing. Right. Anything that sounded remotely like that was like super embarrassing. Then I got to college, turned out klezmer music was, if not hip at any rate, a way to make money playing at weddings. But, wait, but when, when, there, when that, we talk, because I've heard Anthony Coleman talk about this and some other people, when that hipness, you know, began to sort of, uh, present itself was it like a folkways Smithsonian sort of thing where people were just digging faraway sounds or was it specifically the Jewish thing I think it was a combination of two things on the side of the musicians it was there people were getting access to and studying original uh, old recordings from the 1920s or maybe even earlier than that right of uh, 
you know, like the klezmer, the Jewish, the masters of Jewish music, like Naftali Brandwine and Dave Terrace, and this guy Itzikol Kramptweis, and a bunch of others. Like those recordings were becoming available on compilations. So that was one thing. On the other side, I my impression, and I'm not an expert about this, but my impression was that that uh, being Jewish or being ethnic in certain ways was emerging from, uh, let me just speak as, a, as a, an American Jew, that it was emerging from uh, a period during which that was kind of felt a little shameful mm-hmm. uh, into a period where all of a sudden it, it, people were saying that it was kind of hip to be ethnic mm-hmm. in some ways. So, so for the people that would hire you to play their wedding, they were like, they thought they were getting a taste of something that was maybe in their blood that they had been denied earlier, and it was very exciting for them. And for us, the musicians, it was just a chance to study the records and learn that style and learn how to play that stuff because it's really complicated. It turns out to be mm-hmm. a lot of fun, as you know. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun to play. I mean, there's sort of... Um, I, I know what you're saying when you say it's embarrassing, and when I remember as a child, you know, you, it's like... You don't grow up hearing much of it. I heard. I, I. I knew it was a familiar sound, and to me, it sounded like, you know, it smelled like the mothballs in my grandmother's house. Uh huh. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. it sounded like the Catskills. You know, it was not something I was interested in. But when you listen to it, as a musician, especially as a clarinetist, you listen to Dave Terra's play. It's. It's. I mean, he was at a level of musicianship that any of the great jazz musicians are at. And definitely gives you a feeling of like, how does how what's he doing? Like, I, I want to be able to do right. that. Definitely, just from an instrumentalist standpoint. So you got into it through the, the wedding circuit? Yeah, like that. And I got serious about it, and, and I spent a lot of time dissecting that stuff, slowing it down to half speed on the tape machine, trying to figure out all the little tricks that they use, the melodic tricks, how to get from this note to that note, what do you put in between, how do you embellish the melody and stuff like that. So I really tried to figure out exactly what they were up to. Mm-hmm. Then I started playing with that band called the Klezmorum. The, which was like a larger group. It's no? like a, uh, it was like a brass band. Right. And they had like a whole shtick. They got on stage. I, I, sh- I guess I should say we had a shtick because I was part of it. Well, I was recruited later. But it involved, you know, like semi-theatrical routines. and. What do you mean? Like, 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 uh, like, like call and response? N- and n- yeah. Walk in the bar? Like, no, it was like... I mean, it was like a. The- it was almost like they saw themselves as almost like a theatrical performance, where they would they would develop like a way of like doing a medley of songs that that included like in a sense kind of like telling the story of how klezmer music migrated from the old country to the new country and then got influenced by jazz and also had some influence on some jazz musicians. Blah right. blah blah. Right, right, right. Yeah. The Sidney Bechet connection. Exactly. And, right. Yes, exactly. But yeah. when you were getting into this music and, and you, were, you were accessing it professionally, but then also on a creative level, how much of it, if at all, was, was, was exciting as a Jewish person and, and sort of exploring your own identity? I tried. <laughs> I did, man. I really, Wait, wanted, try? I really wanted that to mean something to me. And really? I don't think it meant all that much. Yeah, I kept waiting to. I kept hoping and waiting to have some kind of feeling of like, whatever, like returning to your roots or whatever that is. Some sort of Jerusalem syndrome that would happen to the clarinet. And and I dug the music, and I really and yeah, it didn't really do it. I mean, the music did it for me as music. Yeah, 
but it, I never really felt like, ah, the music of my people or this is in my blood or blah, blah, blah. Well, so do you guys, are any of you, besides Molly, uh, familiar with the new Klezmer trio and what that music was? It was bass, drums, and clarinet. Kenny Wallison, yeah. Yeah. Dan Siemens. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and Ben. Yeah. Um, well, that was the thing. I mean, eventually I got this idea of like, let's bust it out. Let's just do something really weird with this music. I mean, without sounding cliche, it's like imagine putting, you know, Sun Ra beside uh, Sidney Bechet. Like, it was literally... It was, I mean, it was very unusual music. And if, you know, you saw the bit, the name Klezmer, and you said, oh, I like Klezmer, I'll listen to this, you might have been in for something of an impolite awakening. Oh, yeah, people got really angry. Yeah. People, and with people come to the concert and say, this isn't Klezmer music, you know? Because they just want to hear doinas and... Cause, because for us, it was more like free improvisation or something like that. Well, we wanted to, we wanted it to be Klezmer. I mean, I, all, everything I played was like, just like uh, uh, um, extrapolations from klezmer music. I mean, sometimes yeah. it was a real klezmer song. Yeah. And but everything was like, I mean, that music is crazy, and it can go on and on and on and on. You, it doesn't have to be contained in just like playing a little tune. You know, that's what we discovered. Like, just keep going, and and one one mode turns into another. I mean, I was using a lot of that stuff tonight when I was playing. Sure. Solo, you can just keep transforming the tonalities and and messing around with it. it it's so cool and that's a comfortable place for you totally yeah yeah when when you think about the time period that that band was you know really um active and and sort of finding itself how much of that music was about the bay area and that time and and who was around Well, you know, in a way, I have to say that my, I think my, uh, I kind of had this idea that we were making music for people in New York to listen to. Does that mean e even though I didn't, <laughs> Even though I didn't really know what was going on in New York, because yeah. I hadn't really spent any time in New York, I kind of I had some ideas about what, I, I had kind of had my own ideas about what was happening. Okay. In New York, and in some ways, I think I kind of had my eye on that. So that when we got the chance to play, like at the Knitting Factory, we went and played at like the What Is Jazz mm -hmm. Festival, the Knitting Factory. And then we went on some Knitting Factory tours, uh, and I well, John Zorn found the record in a record store when he was in the East Bay. Uh, just the, I happened to have dropped off some records <clears throat> at that place called Down Home Music. Mm -hmm. And John found them, and then he listened to it and then called me up and invited me to come to this festival in Munich that he was putting together right. in 1992. So, and then all the who are now considered to be the heavyweight elders of the scene were there. Of, you're talking specific, specifically about the radical Jewish culture. Well, I don't think there was a thing yet called radical Jewish right. culture, but John had this idea to put together a festival I think that was the first time that the phrase radical Jewish culture was used, actually. How did that phrase land for you when you first heard it? It sounded pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounded cool. And we were like, I mean, we, we were like pipsqueaks. There was Tim Byrne and Elliot Sharp and actually Zena was there. Uh -huh. And Mark Rebo and everybody that, um, you know, we were kind of just thrilled to be included in something like that. But yeah. we were the only band that was playing... Jewish music at that. Right. You know, we were the only thing that was 
doing something. Well, Zorn performed Kristallnacht at that uh, festival. Do you guys know that piece? You know that piece? That was, I, that it I is as intense as Jewish music has gotten. Oh, as it's far the as most I, intense thing you've ever yeah. heard. Yeah. But other than that, there was nothing that had, that had the flavor or the inflection of klezmer music. Yeah. Was that strange to you? Did you feel like, did you find yourself asking, well, what about this is Jewish? Asking what about when, when you're sitting, you know, either backstage or in the in the um, the audience listening to the other performers, and as you said, you know, your group is the only group that's playing like easily identifiable Jewish music. Yeah, right. right. When you hear when you hear this other stuff, are you are you thrilled by it? Are you are you wondering where is the Jewish content in it? I don't think so. I think I kind of like the idea because I was my impression. Of, of what John was up to was just to say, like, there's Jews that are making music, so that's what this is. That's as, the, that's as much as I could figure out. I mean, just a quick pause. It. I said we wouldn't talk about clarinets, but I didn't say we wouldn't talk about Jews. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that, you know, there was, I, I to this day, um, and I don't think I'm, you know, like talking out of turn, but that, that particular moment in time as a listener and as like a, as a teenager was really crucial for me when I encountered all that stuff that was a really, you know, it, it was just important to, as important to me as discovering Albert Eiler and discovering any music that I love, whether yeah, it's the yeah, Melvins yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I came to the party a little late. I, I still feel like somewhere inside of me, there's something I want to contribute to that conversation ah, that ended nice. 20 years ago. <laughs> I'm sure there's still something to contribute. But do you feel like that, that was a period of time that you know is is all wrapped up um or do, do you see that a, a continuing life there no uh not for me yeah i, I mean pretty quick i stopped saying that it was true i mean we, new klezmer trio made our first record in like i think we put out our first record in 1992 or something like that uh -huh. by the way everybody molly barker is here who did all the cover art for all molly the barker new trio records I, um, that was like 1992 and then we made a couple more records and we, we toured around and tried to make the most of it but um, for, I mean I think within about four or five years I felt like and this might have been partly on, to be honest it might have been partly a reaction to seeing a lot of a, a big proliferation of people doing supposedly modern things with Jewish sounds. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I was so thrilled with that. And I, I certainly didn't want to be uh, um, categorized or something like that. I, I kind of I had a feeling that maybe it would be dangerous if I kept pursuing this idea of like, yes, I'm the, I'm the modern Jewish clarinet player or something like that. I really didn't feel like doing that. So right away, within a few years, I just kind of stopped saying klezmer. Yeah, and that band broke up anyway, and then uh, then we went on this. There was a knitting factory tour that went up and down the East Coast, and and by and that must have already been just maybe like 1995 or something like that. And I told them, "Don't say New Klezmer Trio." Really? Just called Ben Goldberg Trio. It was it, me and Trevor and Elliot Cavi. Uh huh. At that point, and you you just felt it was time and it was important to put some distance between you and that. Yeah, for me, because I just didn't. I don't know. I didn't feel like. Well, I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I can only talk about musicians. I don't think musicians uh, are especially attracted to easy categorization of any kind. Yeah, right, exactly. I kind of had a feeling, and just in terms of like when I imagined 
having a career in music or a career as an artist, let's say. I just felt like probably better just to have it relate to my own name, no matter mm -hmm. what I feel like doing, rather than pursuing a certain category. When you made that conscientious um, transition, was did it have an effect on you creatively? Did you did you feel anything open up or change in any way? Well, I was still casting about. You know, I was like trying to figure out what I what I wanted to do and how I wanted to play. Um, still at that time. Still at that time. Still, still tonight. Still tonight. <laughs> yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. It never. It never stops. Yeah. It never yeah, stops. But I didn't have. I. I didn't have a very clear. It wasn't like I had something else that I was. That I was, uh, I was writing little tunes, and then we, like, we made that record called "Here by Now," mm -hmm. it's a trio record, actually with Trevor and Elliot. So that, I guess that was that band, mm -hmm. and uh, you can hear. I mean, there's actually kind of like klezmer music on that record, uh, but I didn't want to call it. Anything but when like you were, so when you were exploring klezmer and and you, and sort of synthesizing it with your other interests to create this band. How can, how can I say this? Were you still, uh, when you stopped doing that, and, and for instance, you played this piece tonight from your record, Speech Communication, which yeah. I remember when that record came out and I got it and I said, wait, this is Ben and it's Kenny Wallison and I, I think it's Greg on that. Greg, Greg yeah, Cohen's Greg playing bass, bass, but I was like, oh, yeah. this is interesting that it's not New Klezmer Trio, though it's basically the same band. That's right. By sort of um, extricating yourself from that Jewish scene, do, do you... Yeah feel like it was easier for you to explore your own melodic language and your own harmonic language well, as a that's composer? A, that's a, for me, that's been a very, very, very long process of study and experimentation and trying to find melodic language. And I think one thing you can hear in the stuff I was playing tonight, it's like, I love major keys, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I never allowed myself to play in a major key in the old days. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't. It, Do you remember like, what, 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 what was the... Uh, the hard line that disallowed you from doing that because I cause it's because it was new klezmer trio and that's all based on the harmonic minor scale or like yeah. modes of the harmonic minor scale and I just felt like so oh, it was oh. absolutely the Jewish aspect of the music that prevented you from playing in major <laughs> yeah I didn't want to play in major keys I mean that's kind of weird because I love major keys and so much possibility in major tonality yeah you know? now yeah. I can't stop and now, I mean, and now it's like when I'm just, when I'm improvising, I mean, this is like maybe the latest thing for me, but I feel like when I'm improvising, like I was doing tonight, just like improvising, um, you know, I tend to hear things, as you could tell, I kind of tend to hear things in major keys and chord mm -hmm. progressions and uh, arpeggios and like mm -hmm. that. And, and, uh, I mean, in the context of like free improv, the funny thing is that for me, in the context of free improvisation and uh, the kinds of um, uh, um, conventions or like stylistic things that have uh, uh, always seemed like uh, if it's free improvisation and it's going to be hip, it better it should do this and it shouldn't do that you know those kind of i hate that shit. ideas yeah. or yeah, yeah. i don't know what it is it's it's, but it's everybody a little devil that sits on like your shoulder yeah. yeah yeah so it's the funny thing is to, is that like in the context of just improvising without a plan for me the one of the frontiers is to kind of follow my ear 
into a major when I when it leads me into a major key and just be like, okay, that's where we are now. It's like a strangely courageous thing to do. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah, it's really another thing that I that I noticed I was doing tonight that I wanted to comment on: make mistakes. Yeah, I was, and and that's like like because I used to get kind of I used to be very anxious about making a mistake, and then if I did make a mistake, then what do you do? Then you need to pretend like it's not a mistake. Or well, cover it up. Or I mean, there's that. There's uh, I can think. Of, there's this um, Lee Conant's Jerry Mulligan quartet record, and you know he's playing a solo, and there's a squeak, and then he repeats the squeak three, or, you know, three or four times in a rhythmic way. And, oh, okay, there you, you know, go. that's one way to acknowledge yeah. that you know, yeah, 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 the mistake happened, and you're making music out of it. I mean, was there a period of time when? I mean, first of all, what constitutes a mistake in, in well, improvisation? Well, I'm, I'm trying to hear a note, and I and I end up playing a note squeak. other than the one <laughs> okay. that I'm imagining. But does it then, feel like personally devastating at the moment? No, that's the thing. I don't want. I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. I don't want it to. I want you to shouldn't. feel like, oh, people make mistakes. Let's get back to it. And I and I kind of I was kind of into the idea tonight, at any rate, of like uh, laughing a little bit at it, or or at any rate, you know, like just letting letting it be obvious to listeners that I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, I feel like for the sake of, you know, a shared objective reality, like the truth is we're in a room with 10 people. So whether it's this conversation or the conversation that was happening musically, it's to treat it as a, a, a moment of pure entertainment would be a little disingenuous. You know what I'm saying? Like an actual conversation, there, there's give and take. And, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So that gloss of like entertainment is a little, you know. You mean like, you, you, you mean to treat it like here's a, here's a, a uh, a, a program of music that I've worked hard on, and I'm going to try to present it. I just mean it's an intimate environment, so like, let's assume that you know anyone who's here is like just going to be very naturally forgiving of the fact that it is an intimate environment, and not you know. You mean they're going to forgive me the fact that I fucked up the music? Yeah, it's not like Mariah Carey and like on New Year's Eve, you know, when like whatever happened, you know. <laughs> no, I think that's the thing. But that's a that, that that's the thing we need to work on. I mean, you need to work on that because because everything else in in life is telling you that the goal is to to do the dazzling, perfected, glossy, uh, impressive. Thing. Right. So if you, so I, th- I, f- I honestly, I feel like you have to kind of, if you want to be able to walk into a room and play music for people and feel like you're having a conversation with them or you're sharing something with them or you're connecting with people in a genuine way, you need. I think you need to work on that. Work on your ability to know that what your goal is mm-hmm. in that direction, because I don't, I don't, I don't think it's that easy. I'd say it's damn near impossible the i mean the thing you know the thing about improvisation is you know as as damaged as you and you or i may be or as many of the people as we know may be i I think improvisation is is a good uh practice for some aspect of honesty and being present you know um like we know bad improvisation when we take part in it Mm -hmm. and generally you know i feel like a quick indicator of that is oh no one was listening you know it is a conversation people weren't listening to each other yeah the musicians yeah sure of course yeah yeah so you've been in new york all summer all summer long how's it been fantastic having a ball 
As a as a, a person who grew up listening to jazz, I mean, is there something about being in New York that that feels like? Do, do you still do you still get that 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 mystique, that awe, that sense of awe about like this is being the place where it happened? That's a good question. I think I used to more. When I was young and I came to New York, I'd be like, hey, there's 52nd Street or something like that. Yeah. I'm just in awe of people that can play music. <laughs> you, mean, you mean the, the physical aspect of it or the fact that there's someone who can sustain it over time? Just people that can do it so well, and there's so many of them in New York. So. There's a few. Old, older, older and younger. There's a few. There's have a you, few, yeah. Have you gone... <laughs> Yeah. I don't, you know, I, my favorite things in the entire world, as far as place and time go, are places that feel like real places. Yes. You know, so whether that's yeah, 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 Peter yeah. Luger Steakhouse right over here, right. or, you know, Russ and Daughters, or the right. Village Vanguard. Right, right, right. You know, right, right. 100% of the time, I'd rather be, you know, I, I want to be in a place like that. A place that feels like a real place. Yeah, or like Swan Oyster Depot in San Francisco, a place yeah. that's a real place, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and so if I go to a place like the Village Vanguard, even though I might, there's a very good chance I'm not like that into you know what's happening musically. Being there nourishes me, yeah. In a way, um, yeah. the continuity of a place like that nourishes me in a way. Yeah, that really. It's really really. And as you get older, you also understand like the um, the amount of work and dedication that's involved in maintaining a place like that. Yeah. And continuing it. Yeah. I mean. The, and, you know, I mean, you reach a certain age, you realize you've seen, and, he, and around here, it's like almost instantaneous. A venue pops up, then disappears. Then there's another venue, then it's gone. Then somebody's booking a concert series at such and such a place, then you don't ever hear of it anymore. I mean, it's, you just become aware of how ephemeral uh-huh. those gathering places are where people get together to play music and listen to it. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I remember, you know, when I used to do The Door, at the stone, you know, with good frequency, some you generally uh, someone from Europe or or Japan would show up looking for the stone. They would look around at this like crummy little room and think, "This is it," you know. Like there, there's, there's this idea of you know this being this like central location yeah, where yeah. This, this important music happens. But yeah, in actuality, right. you know, it's a tiny little you know. Yeah, the physical space is is. Is not the thing. Yeah. That's kind of a scary, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else? What else you want to talk about? Oh, so that record that you just made with Michael Coleman is what I want to talk about. Oh, yeah, that's a good And I want to record. talk, sorry, uh, I listened to this record that Ben made today, and I didn't know what I was going to be listening mm-hmm. to. Um, I know Steve Lacey's been important to you. That's right. Uh, and this record came out. It's called Practitioner. It's a duo record with Ben and Michael Coleman, who plays keyboards and synths and pianos and stuff. Um, and I, you know, figuratively fell out of my chair when I was listening to it because it was not at all what I expected. It's like a true... I, I feel like all of your, the, the, your recorded stuff has been, you know, in, in the jazz tradition of... Uh, a document of an event that happened. Yeah. And this is like a crazy electronic studio record with all kinds of 
of sonic trickery and that's right. just bizarre like like you have to stop and and kind of create your own context to what you're listening to yeah it's completely psychedelic it's like a weird dreamscape when did you start doing that with that record that was the first one yeah yeah that was the first and that one. was that was your instigation well, we had the, we, the, this record called Practitioner. It's based on a book of etudes that Steve Lacey made called Hocus Pocus. And he called it Book H of Practitioners. So we made this right. We, so Michael Coleman, does, do people know Michael Coleman? He plays piano. And, uh, he's a great uh, songwriter also. Um, we, we started playing that music together. It's very tricky music, the mm-hmm. Hocus Pocus stuff. It's very intricate and it's made out of weird material too. It's not, it's made out of stuff that, in, that uh, Western instruments were not designed to do because it's made out of perfect fourths and minor seconds. And he was writing that for soprano? Yeah, but, but his, his, one of the goals of the, of the pieces is that he wanted to make stuff that was hard to play. But also that he was, you can tell, I mean, he was obsessed with this. Well, how do you interpret so, so. That, that goal of making music that's hard to play? What's the... Uh... Well, because it was etudes. It's like, it, like, he kind of boiled down, like a lot of the stuff that you hear Steve Lacey play, it's all boiled down in Hocus Pocus. I mean, that's like, yeah. if you want to know what his music is made out of, just study that stuff. It'll that's tell like the you Rosetta everything Stone. you need to know. Everything. Yeah. And it's like weird patterns that are all based on perfect fourths and minor seconds, essentially. Um, and that's very hard. I mean, a piano isn't made to do that, and mm. the clarinet is certainly not made <laughs> to do it. Well, clarinet is b- barely made to play. It's not so easy to play even like major triads on a clarinet, but let alone perfect fourths and ma- minor seconds. I mean, that'll tangle up your fingers really quick. At any rate, I'm not saying all that to say how amazing I am as a clarinet <laughs> player, because we... But we did get to the point where we could play that stuff yeah. very intricately and very uh, accurately together in unison. And then we were going to make a record of it. And, and then the question came up about, like, uh, what would be the point of making a record of us just nailing that stuff the way we were able to, uh-huh. uh, aside from showing, in a sense, kind of showing off to people that we could do this thing that's not so easy to do. So we were like, well, if we're going to record that thing, like, why? You know, like, why do you do that? And also, I mean, in a larger context, like, there's, there's, a, there's like a little bit of an industry going on these days of people, uh, our contemporaries, recording pro- a project that has something that supposedly has something to do with somebody who came before. Uh, that's a slippery... Yeah, I'm Slope. not. I'm not crazy about that, to tell you mm. the truth. So, so we. So the question. There was a real question for us. Like, okay, if you're going to record that, what, how? What do you do with it? And then we thought, like, make a collage out of it. The, the idea came first. Like, make a. See if it's possible to make a collage, out of all that stuff. And we, but we didn't know what how we were going to do it. But we kind of had a goal. Mm-hmm. So we started by recording. All the uh, sections of each piece over and over and over, like, for example, B-flat clarinet and piano, B-flat clarinet and Wurlitzer, contra-alto clarinet and synthesizer, et cetera, et cetera. cetera. Several takes of the same material with different instruments. Yeah, we spent, I think we had three different recording sessions, and we just ended up with a massive amount of that. (coughs) Meanwhile, in the control room, Eli Cruz was taking everything we played and running it through machinery, like 
prime time, certain kinds of delays, stuff I don't even really know the name of. Sure, but just manipulating the hell out of it. Yeah, and rec- and putting that on a on a, on separate tracks. And we really had no idea because that wasn't coming back to us in our headphones. I mean, we knew he was doing it, but right. we didn't know what the sounds were. It wasn't influencing your musical decisions. As no, you were it playing. wasn't. Right. That's right. It wasn't. Right. So then, uh, after we had all this stuff, then we actually, fortunately, we got a grant because we knew that it was going to take a long time to mix it. If there was any possibility of putting it together, it was not going to be something you could do in a day or even two days. So we yeah. got some grant money from an organization in San Francisco, and then that allowed us to be to spend a whole week in the studio mixing it. And we had like 120 tracks. We put everything that we had recorded all over the tracks. And then we started moving it around uh-huh. and just like trying to see if it was possible to build a, like a sonic collage. Right. Plus we freaked out when we heard the stuff that Eli had actually created um, using that machinery because it was incredible. And did, the, did, did your inner jazz musician at any moment say, no, 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 I, I, I don't want something that's not... Uh, no, let me tell you, that's a lot of fun. That's a fun way to make a record. You don't have to worry like, like, damn, I messed up on take three. I wish I wouldn't have messed up. Who cares? You just snip out a little piece that sounds good and put it next to something else and, and you can build a, a record that sounds exactly the way you want it to sound. Or you it'll sound like it's from outer space. It's like from outer space. And plus, we make, a lot of times we didn't even, we would use not, we wouldn't even use the original tracks, the clean tracks. We would just use Sure. Stuff that's spiraling outward from the delays and stuff like that. And, and, and also, uh, we had played some shows and Michael had recorded them on a micro cassette recorder. You can hear that in there. We just, I mean, it's to- the sound is like lo fi totally mashed yeah. up. It's as lo fi as it gets. And we put, we put that on in the mix. And uh, somehow we, we, we started off by saying, let's don't even pay, let's don't even honor the way that the various sections that are all part, supposed to be part of the same song, let's, let's don't make them part of, on our record, we don't need to make them part of the same song, but right away that became kind of important to us. So we, to keep, to maintain the integrity of the composition. Yeah. yeah, and it proved to be fine. The funny thing is we got, th- there's six of those songs and five of them came together very quickly, relatively uh-huh. speaking, right. very quickly. It was the, the one that comes first on that record that actually took the most time to figure out and was it one of those things where you guys were sort of like in the dark trying to find the light switch? Or Yeah, for, we had a lot of different versions of it. That's a weird thing about working like that because it, everything is completely flexible and malleable and plastic. So, I mean, y- you can do something. And, and the, the tricky thing is, is to try to maintain a sense of like artistic intent or like aesthetic... Um, intelligence or something about it because you could do anything you want you could turn anything into anything but how easy was it for you to just to to tell yourself well we we know this music upside down and we performed it you know as best we could so that's there that's taken care of now let's just go where our ears take us yeah no just there's some kind of anxiety saying like when you have so many possibilities and so many choices Mm-hmm. But that's, I think, where the Hocus Pocus came in, because Hocus Pocus, it's magic. So one thing would lead to another and would be like, hey, what's, what was, wasn't there like a weird section of this, the B section of this tune 
that Ian would put it next to it and it, it would work and then mm. something else would happen and it would work. So, so I know Steve Lacey is kind of like one of your main guys yeah, as, as a definitely. listener and as a musician. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you ever get a chance to take study with him? I or? took one lesson with him, yeah. Just one? For an afternoon. Yeah, it changed my whole life. It literally changed my life. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not much to it. This was I used to where? follow him around in Paris and beg him for a lesson, and then you went to Paris. Yeah, yeah. Oh, when I played with the Klezmorum, the weird thing about that band—it was a terrible experience in every way. <laughs> and there was no money, and the people were out of their minds. I shouldn't say that on a podcast, but the, that's all right. The man. people in that band were like totally out of their minds. It was a negative experience in every way, except that. <laughs> that somehow they had this agent in France that got them a lot of work in fr all over France. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of work. He would like to book tours that lasted six weeks, but that involved 10 concerts in <laughs> six weeks or something weirdly. I mean, I don't, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but, they, but those guys had a taste for Paris. So instead of like hanging out in the small towns in France, everybody would hightail it back to Paris. And, and stay in Paris, which was cool for me because Steve Lacey lived in Paris then. And he played a lot locally. There, uh -huh. there were some local places where he played. This is what year? This is? 88, I okay. don't know, 86 or something like that. So you go to Paris with this wonderful group and you know Steve's there and you know he's playing. So I followed him around and I introduced myself. I mean, I was like, I mean, t t to me, Steve Lacey was like, he was like the greatest he was like my hero I mean yeah. I could barely speak to him I was so nervous but I did manage to ask him for a lesson and eventually he kept saying no I don't teach and forget it stuff like that and then I don't know maybe I wore him down or something like that and you went to his place for a lesson he said come over and, and we'll have a lesson so I did and what was that lesson like oh it was amazing it was I mean it was mind basically mind-blowing what did you guys work on well he <laughs> he said he said i'm not a teacher but let's treat it like a doctor's appointment play something for me and i'll diagnose the problem <laughs> <laughs> so i did i played something for him or we played a duet maybe or something like that of like a free improv or one yeah, of his he pieces said, let's improvise a okay bit. so we improvise and then he said okay you got to work on rhythm it was true and he gave me a book he had, uh, he, it must be a, has been a photocopy. He gave me a book that's called Rhythmic Solfege by Kenny Clark. Mm. Kenny Clark wrote a book on rhythms. He said, study this book. And then he just, basically he, to, he told me about the way that he had learned to play music. And he told me about the specific uh, exercises that he had invented for himself. Like he showed me how to play scales so that they mean something. How does that? How does that mean? Slowly, so that you can play a play a scale so slowly that you never have to think about what the next note is. So that your experience of playing the scale is just basically walking around and listening to the to the scale pass huh. by. Yeah, that was super important to me because I thought playing scales was you know. how many thirty second notes can you fit into exactly? A, yeah, exactly. But he was like. It's not a scale. He's like, it's not a scale. Doesn't mean go up and down. A scale is just a collection of notes that have some relationship to each other. Sure. So that's what you want to learn. You want to learn how that, how those notes sound when they're next to each other. 
So he said, play all your scales every day, very slowly. So that takes about an hour. Then all the major scales. And he said, start on the lowest note on your instrument, go to the highest one and go back down. Don't start on the root unless that happens to be the low note on your instrument. Because you want it to be a sound and that sound should have no no bottom and no top. Uh-huh. So that took that takes about an hour. And then he showed me about the because he had read something by Igor Stravinsky that said, learn music according to intervals. Learn music by intervals. And he had thought about that and he interpreted that to mean get good at all the intervals. So he showed me how he had uh, written down all the intervals that are possible on the soprano saxophone. This is all in his book, by the way, that he published later. Mm-hmm. And then write it down all the intervals, then snip it up with the scissors, put it in a bowl or a hat, draw them out one at a time, and write them down again in whatever order they come out. He said, then you have a book of random intervals. Mm-hmm. And he showed me his. He said, you make your own, and then, then you, write, you write down all the intervals, then you have a random order of intervals. And he said, that's what you want to study, because then it's just intervals. Hmm. Then it's, there's no choice involved on your part or where your ear might lead you. It's just one, you know, two notes followed by two other notes. And he said, play through those every day. He, he said, play each one, sing it, play it again. As a way of trying to develop the ear. Hmm. So I did that every day. So I did those two things every day. So you took those as gospel. Say again. You took those 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 lessons as gospel. Gospel. Yeah. And I did that every day for like ten years. And they both of those things had a very strong effect. Yeah. A very strong effect. I think I mentioned once the first time I played those scales, I just about fainted. I almost threw up. From strong medicine. Yeah. Very strong medicine. Yeah. So then it was like, get stronger, you know, like keep doing it and trying to get stronger. And, and right away, a lot of stuff started opening up, especially with that interval exercise. Because you're just like playing some random series of notes. It's uncomfortable. And thinking about the distance between them. And, and so it changed the way the ear heard things. Like I felt like all of a sudden certain uh, uh, um, sounds became uh, evident to me or like desirable or, or like I wanted to play that note down there when before maybe I hadn't thought of that note. Hmm. And, and, and were, you, were you asking yourself, well, what is it that's attractive to me about these, these notes and these intervals? No, because moment? it was more like an automatic thing. It was more like uh, all of a sudden I was playing certain types of melodies or and this is all by the way this is all in the day of new class because this that like i said like when i took that lesson from steve lacy that was kind of like the end of my time with uh the klezmorum mm-hmm. and that's when i that's when i started inventing new klezmer trio so all of this stuff had a, 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 an immediate uh effect on what i was doing and and it, it was all all the stuff that i did with new klezmer trio that was all coming out of yeah all coming out of this stuff did you ever see steve again after that day Oh, yeah, I saw him many times. And once a friend of mine played him the first New Klezmer Trio record. Uh-huh. I must have sent him a copy of that record. But he, when he first heard it, evidently, he said, worlds collide. <laughs> like, he heard what was going on, you know. Well, he, 
I mean, I've heard, again, I hope I'm not talking out of turn, but he was, he was Jewish and yeah. I feel like uncomfortably so. I asked him once and he said they tried to make me into a Jew, but they didn't succeed. So, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> do, uh, do any of you guys have uh, any questions that you want to? It's okay if you don't. In klezmer music, the yeah. renewed interest? I have a feeling because my sense of like what was happening in New York, like, all, I mean, just the fact that like, well, it, let's face it, like John Zorn got involved and, and like all of a sudden like there was a convergence between like what was considered to be hip and, right. and all of a sudden Jewish, I mean, I mean, Yeah, totally. Yeah, well, for one thing, it was hip. I mean, it was like, but just the fact that it was yours, that kind of blew my mind because I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was telling somebody the other day that uh, one of my dreams when we started New Classroom 2, I wanted to play at CBGB's. Really wanted to play at CBGB's, and I called them up a lot, and finally they said, yeah, why not? You know, come play at CBGB's. And I, we were like totally thrilled. That was like the place we really wanted to play. And, and I had done, I mean, those, this was the days before email and stuff like that, so everything is done over the phone. And they, were, they seemed super friendly and everything like that. And we, this was like, this must have been like 90, gee, you know, it might have been like 1990 or something like that. I think it was before our record actually came out, our first record. And then we, I remember we, we, we pulled up to the, in front of the club and they had one of those posters that they used to make that listed all the bands on it. And it said, New Cleanser Trio. <laughs> that whole time they had, I was like, wow, this is hip. CBGB's is kind of into klezmer music, or at least they're willing to let us play there. They had no idea. They had absolutely no, they had no idea. They probably couldn't have cared less anyway. But. New Cleanser Trio. I wish I had a copy of that poster. If anybody finds one, yeah. call me. They probably don't exist anywhere because it's just plain paper. Pardon me? It was fantastic. We just cranked up the bass so loud, you just wouldn't believe it. It was a total thrill. It was fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think I just, I hear a lot of stuff still coming out of those. Uh, melodic uh, um, patterns or, or the, those scales and stuff like that. I like that stuff a lot, and I still hear it, and I'll use it even though I won't use it necessarily in something that sounds like people might not think, oh, there's, klezmer, there's a, a, a fragment of klezmer music or a quote of klezmer music, but I just like the sounds. I like the sound of the flatted fifth or what you might call the sharp four. I, I just keep getting drawn to that. And also just the way that um, 
that, you know, like, like I mentioned, like klezmer is kind of based on the harmonic minor scale or like different sections of it. And it's a real fascinating sound. So that stuff is really still in, in, it's just in me. It's just like the way I like to play. Well, Ben. Jeremiah. As I stated uh, a few moments ago, hearing you play is to me, there, there isn't any better clarinet playing. And I, I really, really appreciate you coming down and hanging out and playing and talking. And uh, thanks to Arate for having us. Yes. Mr. Ben Goldberg. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to you, Jeremiah. A pleasure.